Hey, I'm Pastor Robert. Welcome to Riverside Friends Church. Today we're going to continue our look at 1 Corinthians. I want to start by talking about my brother because my brother, he's he's incredible. He's brilliant. In high school, he had like an IQ test done. And I don't know if you know how IQ tests work, but the average is always 100 and the standard deviation is always 15. So as you go up by increments of 15, you get, you know, it's like a bigger step up and whatever, right? Am I looking? Yeah, yeah. I thought I was blurry for a second. Whatever. All right. So my brother's IQ, he sits around like the 145 mark, which puts him at three standard deviations above average, which puts him in like the top 1% of IQ in the nation. And my brother loves this joke because it's a math joke. And that was his like specialty, his area. He says that there are, there are two types of people. There are those who can extrapolate from incomplete data. That's it. That's the joke. And he loves that joke. And in case that wasn't, you know, in case that wasn't enough, here's the, the same joke repackaged, right? There are two, two type of people. Those who finish what they start. You know, if you want another one, you know, we could say like, there are four over two types of people. Those who understand fractions and those who do not. So our text today will be from uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, if you want to find that. But it begins with Paul saying that there are two types of people. And we must remember the context for 1 Corinthians. There's a church that is fighting because they have primarily two types of people, Jews and Greeks. And they each bring with them their own ideas of what the church should look like. And so far, Paul has offered a greeting to these people. And his reason for writing, I covered that two weeks ago. And last week, our Paul, Pastor Paul, continued with the apostle's reason for writing, this idea of keeping the first thing first. And so now we pick up with Paul's exhortation to the church. Here's how you keep the first thing first. And so this is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 25. It says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So what's Paul saying? He says there's two types of people in verse 18, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the expectation as we read through verse 18 is that Paul is saying that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, well, then it's wisdom. But that's not what he's saying, though. He kind of thwarts our expectations. He doesn't say it is wisdom. He says it is the power of God. See, the power of God is the message of the cross. And as Paul writes this, how would his, under- how would his uh, audience understand power? So we need to understand the context of Corinth because there's these many people groups living together. 
and they're fighting with one another and they're not getting along. Now, Paul is saying that there are two groups. That there's two groups, that those who are, there's those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And instantly it would be easy for them to think in terms of, oh, that's us. Us Greeks, we're the ones being saved and those Jews are perishing. Or the Jews would say, oh, that's us. We're the ones being saved and those Greeks are perishing. And both sides will think that they're the ones being saved while the other is perishing. Both sides will think, I know how to do this. I know how to be the church. And if they would just listen to me, then they would get it. But why? Why might the Greeks and the Jews think that they're the ones to be saved? Well, the Greeks, they love to listen to eloquent arguments. Rhetoric was the Greek form of argument. It didn't matter so much that it was true as much as it sounded beautiful. In rhetoric, a point beautifully argued was better than a true point stated brutishly. So then, whoever had the best argument was praised mightily by the people. Glory and fame came to the one who could argue the best, kind of regardless if it was true or not. And in verse 21, Paul says, The world does not know God through wisdom, but through the foolish proclamation of the cross. See, so the Greeks, they had this expectation that creativity and brilliance would be enough to lead them to salvation. And in verse 20, Paul actually calls this out. He says, who, where's the debater of this age? Who, who is the one, where's the one who is wise? He's talking about lawyers trained in rhetoric. The Jews, though, they were different. There was a book written in the 80s about how the 1980s, the 1990s, that these were the end times and how Jesus was about to come back. And I remember seeing this like cover or somebody showing me the cover of this book and it had Gorbachev the leader of the USSR on the cover. I don't know if you remember this. Gorbachev's kind of this bald guy, but he had this birthmark that started on the top of his head and came down over his forehead. And some Christians, they thought that, well, that must be the mark of the beast. And Gorbachev is the Antichrist. And, you know, us Americans, we got we to gotta fight against this. But then the USSR fell. Uh, that same book, it took Gorbachev off the cover and it replaced him with Saddam Hussein. And what the issue is, is that the author was trying to read the book. of the, the author thought, you know, I can take the book of Revelations and I can take the New York Times. And if I read the book of Revelations through the lens of the New York Times, then I will understand. Then I will know when Jesus is coming back. That's the wrong way to read the book of Revelations. That's not the right way to do that. And the Jews of Paul's time were making the same the same mistake. They were not looking for the second coming of Christ, but his first. And they made the same mistake as the author of the book did. They believed that their Messiah would establish them as a great and mighty kingdom. They wanted a sign from God, and they're constantly looking for it. They wanted to be able to interpret the signs of the times to predict the Messiah's coming. And Paul begins by saying that there are two types of people, those who perish and those who are being saved. Both Greeks and Jews have a reason in their own head that they're the ones being saved. And here's what Paul says in verse 22 and 23. He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See, in verse 22 and 23, Paul is saying both the Greeks with their rhetoric and fancy speech and the Jews with their constant expectancy of the Messiah are perishing. The cross does not fit their expectations. Both the Jews with their expectations of the Messiah and the Greeks with their rhetoric are dealing with power and authority. 
See, the Jews want a Messiah powerful enough to conquer other kingdoms. The Greeks want a God strong enough in wisdom to outsmart his enemies. But we have to remember that power is not displayed through amazing signs or articulate messages, but power is displayed through a man crucified, robbed of dignity, and exposed to the world. There are two types of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. God didn't meet their expectations what a savior would be. You know, when I got married, I had all sorts of expectations what married life would be like. Oh yeah, I was going to have a nice housewife. I envisioned Sarah cooking for me and cleaning up after me. I could snap my fingers and suddenly like I would have coffee and she would dote over me. What a wonderful vision. It's almost like I didn't want a wife, but like a mother or something. But then reality happened. We actually got married. And suddenly when I snapped my fingers, I was just being noisy and bothering her. (laughs) Can you believe her? What's wrong with that? (laughs) What's wrong with her? The reality is, though, is I wouldn't have liked a housewife like that. The expectations I had, they went unmet. But the reality was better. Marriage is better not when we seek to be served, but to serve one another in a race to the bottom. When I try to outserve Sarah and she tries to outserve me, the blessings flow. And this is true for the church as well. Our church is changing and we all bring expectations for what the church should be. Corinth had their Greeks and their Jews and we have our own categories as well. In verse 20, Paul says the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world, even our wisdom for today is foolishness. Almost in opposition to how we might form the church God's wisdom is that we might serve one another. The church isn't here primarily to meet your needs, but in community, your needs will be met as you work to meet the needs of others. And so God is working in a way that undermines our American values and hierarchy, its structure and authority. Why does God work in this way? Well, to answer that, Paul points us inward and asks us to consider our own salvation. So this is verse 26 to 31 in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, it is written, let, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul is saying that if you want to know why God undermines traditional power structures and fonts of wisdom, you need to look at yourself. He's saying not many of you were wise or influential or noble birth. And keep these three things in mind because Paul is going to use them again. He says, But Paul's saying, when God called you, you were a nobody. And God calling here is is not a job or vocation. It's about status and salvation. You were a nobody, and yet God called this church. And in verse 27 and 28, Paul builds off of wisdom, influence, nobility, those three things again. Paul says that God chose what is foolish in the world. That's the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of wise, to shame the wise. He chose the weak, the opposite of influence, to shame the strong, those with influence. God chose the low, the opposite of nobility, to reduce to nothing, the nobility. So the foolish, the weak, and the low, they shame the wise, the influential, and the noble. 
And the word shame here is not just a passing moment of embarrassment, but it's referencing an eternal shame. See, the Corinthians, in pursuing wisdom and power and nobility, they're following a course that will lead to eternal shame. And God does this so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He alone is worthy of praise, and so he lifts up the poor and the downtrodden and asks the strong to serve them so that God alone is praised. The Greek who is a masterful speaker or the Jew who predicts or the wise or the powerful or the nobility, they might be tempted to gain the recognition of the church. But God says, no, I'm going to use the opposite of that. And Paul, Paul goes on, verse 30 and 31, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification and redemption in order that as is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. When I was in the army in basic training, in, in week two, you go through the gas chamber. So it's, uh, it's awful. It's a room full of CS gas. It's the stuff that they use for riot, riot control, but it's a concentrated amount inside of a room. And at this time in basic training, they're trying to teach you to trust your equipment. So that you, they're trying to teach you that you can trust your gas mask. In week six or so, we marched by the gas chamber and we saw a group of new recruits going through the gas chamber. And we thought, as we walked by them, that we were so much better than them. I mean, after all, we did have a total of three weeks more experience than they did. I mean, it was it was like a stupid thing to be prideful of. And looking back, it's kind of funny, right? Like none of us, I had three weeks more experience than they did. Who cares? None of us had done anything real up to that point. It was all training. And we can get prideful on a lot of things that in the grand scheme, they don't matter at all. I was in a church that wanted to replace the carpet in the basement. It was 30 years old. It was kind of this ugly green cum. A group of people didn't want to change it. Why? Because their parents had donated it before they died. It didn't matter that the carpet was raggedy, that it was coming apart of the seams, that it was an ugly green color that had faded. They didn't want it gone. They wanted to keep it. And one of the kids left the church. They said, well, if my parents' carpet isn't staying, I'm not staying. What a dumb reason to leave a church. To this day, I don't think we should name rooms, pews, or anything after the people who donate them. I don't think we should put names on plaques or anything so that no one can boast. Because it's not about you. See, the church is not immune from, from Bible measuring contests. Well, I gave this much. Well, my family has attended for this long. It doesn't matter. Because this is not how God works. See, God uses the weak the unimportant and the low, to shame those thoughts. See, while you were measuring out whose family, family Bible is bigger, God is working. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. This is verse 30. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The point is, it doesn't matter what we have to offer. It's enough for Jesus. He will be glorified. But, but let's keep unpacking verse 30 here. Because there's four words that Paul uses. He uses wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And we could understand them as a list, but I don't think that's quite right. Instead, I think Paul is finally giving a definition of biblical wisdom. See, the people, they would know and they understand what worldly wisdom is through rhetoric. They don't know what biblical wisdom is. And wisdom, according to Paul, is not found in rhetorical brilliance, but it's found in soteriology. 
Soteriology is the study of salvation and how God saves us. See, wisdom, proper biblical wisdom, reminds us of our greatest need for God to save us. Wisdom is understood through righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, so let's go, let's unpack these three words, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and they're going to build on one another. So righteousness, the Greek word is dikaiosine. It is a right standing before God. So if you break the law and you get caught, you will not have a right standing before the law until you pay your fines and you get off paper, off probation. And then you will be dikaiosine, righteous before the law. And so we cannot pay enough fines or serve enough time to become righteous before God. Our sin is too great. Jesus, though, in wisdom, becomes our righteousness. That's verse 30 or so, 29. His right standing before God, as God, becomes our standing. The process of God seeing Christ over our sins is what we call sanctification. So sanctification, the Greek word here is hagiosmos. It's from the Greek word hagios. That means holiness. And, it, and so hagiosmos is almost this like process of being holy. It's the sanctification. And in sanctification, there are two parts. The first is salvation, where God no longer defines us based on our sin, but through Christ's redemption. And the second part of sanctification is spiritual formation. It's God's continual work in our lives to make us holy. And in sanctification, what we do, what happens as we learn to live out of that holiness, we live out of freedom that God has given us in redemption. And that's the third word, redemption, apolytrosis. And in Greek, it is closely related with freedom. It is the idea that you have been bought with a price and then set free. Uh, this Greek word was used to understand the Exodus story that God bought and purchased or he ransomed the people out of Egypt. It's this idea that there's a redeemer who has purchased you with the sole intent of making you free. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story about a man who owes the king a billion dollars. He'll never be able to pay it, repay it. And the king, though, forgives the debt and sets him free. The man goes out and runs into some dude who owes him like 10 bucks. And the man can't pay. And so he has him beaten and imprisoned. And when the king finds out, he's mad. He calls the guy and says, how much did I forgive you? A billion dollars and now you won't forgive 10 bucks? So the king has him beaten and, and imprisoned until he can pay his billion dollars. The reality is you've been set free from a debt that you could not pay. And the price to set you free was no less than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So while you should be serving a limitless time for your crime, Christ has paid your fine and got you off paper. Christ upends our understanding of wisdom. Wisdom is not rhetoric or symbols. Wisdom is the cross. Verse 30 says, wisdom is Jesus Christ who became wisdom from God so that we might enjoy righteousness, the right standing, sanctification, the holiness, and redemption, the freedom. And Paul goes on, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So the wisdom of God is neither rhetoric nor prophecy. The wisdom of God is the cross. The wisdom of the world says, I am worthy of praise. Look how good I am. But the wisdom of God says, he is worthy of praise. Look how good is his cross. 
there are two types of people. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved by the power of God, the message of the cross. Let us proclaim that message today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this word and this time. Would you just continue to make that a reality in our lives? Would you continue to help build us in righteousness and sanctification and freedom that we might live out of it and proclaim your message, the message of the cross, for it is your power to save. Would you help us to live that in truth and reality? In everything we do, would we find our power grounded in you? We just ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.